and how did I sell? I, I guess I've always had it in me a little bit, but I don't necessarily sell, I translate. And by that, I'm able to explain technical stuff in English, in plain language. Plain language, so yes. Understand. So very often people talk in three-letter acronyms and it goes right over your head. So you think, you know, I've got a clue what you just said. I know they're English words, but they don't make any sense to me whatsoever. And so I can explain using analogies, using explanations, drawing stuff. I'm a great drawer. And I can explain how things work. And I guess for directors of companies, when somebody like myself can come along and explain how that computer system works and demystify it for them a bit, they have confidence in me and they gave me the chance to supply. Hello, dreamers and action takers. Welcome to another episode of the Want Money, Got Money podcast. I'm your host, Sam Kamani, and my guest today is Philip Webb. Now, Philip is the founder and managing director of Investors in Community. Investors in Community is a platform which connects investors with good causes and charities. Also, it is more like a SaaS product that investors, um, businesses, corporates can use to manage their givings and showcase what they are doing in the community. Also, Philip is and, and has been a serial entrepreneur. So let's learn from him. What are the secrets to his success? How he managed to raise his initial round of funding and what enabled him to sell at every stage of different stages of his life. So let's get into it. It's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the show. I'm, and I'm waiting to ask you um, so much about Investors income in Community, your platform. But before we get into that, I would love to know a bit more about your own personal journey. How did you get into the field how did you get into entrepreneurship great thanks sam and thanks for having me it's lovely to be here well i'm phil webb i'm a ceo of investors and community but before that i started off my life working for ibm and i was a technical guy so i was a guy that went out and fixed things literally on customer site back in the 80s an awfully long time ago now so i worked for ibm absolutely joyous start to my career i have to say it taught me a lot gave me an awful lot of knowledge and uh I used that knowledge in 1990 to leave IBM, and I was absolutely fed up of being number 96079. It's my personal number from 1989. And uh, decided to go it alone as the entrepreneur within me awoke, I suppose. And I set up a bedroom startup company, as you sometimes do, selling computers, really, and, and networks and hardware and a little bit of prepack software, but nothing too, too sophisticated. It was the days when everybody wanted computer hardware all around the world. Yes. And you want that to be ridiculously stupid to fail in that area at the time. And I wasn't ridiculously stupid, but I managed to succeed in growing a business. And it went from bedroom startup to about six and a half million turnover just within four years. And you might say that was lucky considering you were an engineer, Phil, but I wasn't quite as lucky as that. I had some help. And it was a man called Albert Humphrey. Humphrey to his friends, American by birth, living in London. And he was basically the man that created the SWOT analysis, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, yes. and threats in 1966. And I was very fortunate to bump into him. And he helped me to understand business finance and sales and control and how a board of directors is supposed to behave. He taught me the basics, essentially. And on the back of that, we managed to grow from a little bedroom to a proper office with about 60 staff, turning over six and a half million four years later. I sold that business two years after that and went into a series of small businesses, joint venturing with an accountancy firm. I did training. I did change management, which is what Humph taught me. And then basically in 2005, Humphrey passed away age 79. He's a family friend by that time. Yes. And he left me his research. 
So I own the origins of SWAT. I don't own SWAT. Nobody owns SWAT, but I own the research that gave rise to it and his change management programs. So I did some consultancy work and carried on delivering. I made him a promise before he died. I said, I will be the custodian of your life's work. And so I wrote it into a book in 2014 and I perpetuated his programs, which are incredibly successful because they always were and they always will be. It's based on human nature. So human nature doesn't change a lot. Therefore, change in human behaviours are always predictable. And the programme picks up on the key points and delivers rapid change. So I was quite successful. And obviously through the recession, it was a difficult time, but we got through and we managed to keep moving. And I guess it was about 2016, I was riding a motorbike and um, I, I got a big motorbike and a, a LinkedIn group called Directors on Motorbikes, if anybody's interested two and a half thousand people and there are some people from all over the world on that part of my group I was riding a motorbike and for the first time Sam I managed to pick up the fact that and perhaps it's me being ignorant or naive or both but I didn't realize the extent to which small charities struggled to survive they didn't have any means of promoting themselves they were just amazing people trying to help the what I call their service end user the people they're trying to help and so we raised some money and we gave it to them and they were effusively thankful. And I thought, wow, this is uh, something I don't know much about. Let me find out more. So the curiosity inside of me took over and I looked at all the different charities, looked at how businesses interacted, spotted a gap. And the gap was this. The small charities are invisible to the big businesses and, and any business comes to that. Yes. Yet in England, if you draw statistically in England and Wales, if you draw a five mile radius circle around yourself, there's on average about 140 charities, but nobody knows who they are. Because the little charities can't, don't know how to promote themselves to being visible. So consequently, three quarters of all corporate giving in the UK goes to about 1% of the charities. And you think, what an imbalance, what an unfairness that is. And it gets my goat when things get unfair. So I set about thinking, how can I help? How can I fix the problem? The companies had the problem of can't find charities, don't know how to measure. The charities had the problem of don't know how to find the donors, can't get visibility. So I created a platform. I didn't code it myself. My coding days are long gone. So I got a team involved and we coded a platform and some big businesses came along. This is fantastic. Your your community groups, your charities, your schools can all come on for free, really important. And they can launch lots of little projects asking for volunteers, for gifts, for money, any combination of. They finally got somewhere to go that costs them zero and allows them to be as as big as they have a presence with other big charities, so that levels the playing field a bit for the small ones. The companies, on the other hand, thought it was fantastic because they finally had a choice all over the UK. There are projects asking for help, and they finally had a choice to make a difference locally, not just to the big ones, the big charities. I'm not deriding those, by the way. They do some fantastic work, but companies mm-hmm. have a need to spread their wings into the local community from when they draw their staff and their customers. So why Absolutely. not give locally? And that's how it came about. Sorry, a bit of a long introduction now. But so. well, that's great. That's, that is really great. I've, it's given me so many things that I'm curious to ask you about. My first question is, what sort of motorbike did you ride back then? <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a Suzuki 1250 Bandit. So it's, yeah. um, it's a fast bike. It's a little bit of a cruiser. There's an amazing number of directors and they look most unlikely characters still ride motorbikes, still going through the latent period of their midlife crisis. But, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lovely way of getting out of the cities, out of the screen environment, and you just concentrate on the open road. It's a brilliant release. So, uh, yes, it's uh, something yeah, I like I, to do from time to time. 
I used to own a Kawasaki, like a Kawasaki Ninja, not very big one, but and yeah. also my CTO in one of my startups. He has a Ducati Diablo, which is again 1250 cc, as you said. And they are like they're all into motorbikes and stuff, and that's why it <laughs> it caught my attention immediately. <laughs> but well, join the join the LinkedIn group. And it's about I know, sort of I know, of, I'll definitely have a sort look of at that. After people this. There now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, that's a fantastic story, and it's. Really Really good at what you're. It's great that what you're doing. Going back to your hardware selling days, what enabled you to sell? Like selling is hard for a lot of people, and but selling is such a key life skill. How did you manage to sell to get to that level of revenue in four years? I, I guess I started because my IBM background carries you a little bit. It doesn't carry yes. you for long, but I was a European technical support specialist, so I was yes. top of my game in about a dozen products. And I knew how to make an IBM piece of equipment talk to a deck. Digital equipment, you won't remember those, Sam. They were very old. Yes. They went bust in the mid-90s. But it was the second largest computer company on the planet at the time. And I was a specialist in comms. And so I could make these things happen. And because of that, I was one of about a handful of people that were empowered to go out for the IBM UK and do that piece of work. And I ended up as a hardware support specialist for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So I had the credentials, if you like. So yeah. when I went out into the marketplace, it was off it's that IBM guy. And mm-hmm. so I immediately got attention. And how did I sell? I, I guess I've always had it in me a little bit, but I don't necessarily sell. I translate. And by that, I'm able to explain technical stuff in English, in plain language. Plain so language, yes. Understand. So very often people talk in three-letter acronyms and it goes right over your head. So you think, you know, I've got a clue what you just said. I know they're English words, but they don't make any sense to me whatsoever. And so I can explain using analogies, using explanations, drawing stuff. I'm a great drawer. And I can explain how things work. And I guess for directors of companies, when somebody like myself can come along and explain how that computer system works and demystify it for them a bit, they have confidence yes. in me and they gave me the chance to supply. So we supply the big companies, legal in general, Ministry of Defence, NatWest Bank, the big companies over here, as well as small ones. And yeah. we also exported all around the world as well. So we, we got to meet some very interesting customers. And, and because of that, I had a technical background, I guess, that carried me through the conversations, enabled yeah. me to set up the trust. Uh, for me, it wasn't a sell, it was a tell. It was an explanation and people then purchased from me. Yeah, that's really good. Also, like for your current platform, so I'm sure the same skill helps you in selling it to businesses because I can see that Metro Bank uses you guys, Specsaver uses you guys. This is the investors in community platform. How did you manage to get those companies interested in your platform? It's interesting. The, The investors in community is seen by people in different ways. So for some people who are highly philanthropic and they like to give, because that's just in their nature. They see this as an opportunity to give to a wider range of of community projects, localized stuff that make a real difference to people, and they engage because they want to give. Uh, So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have this burning bridge, uh, and it's called social impact proving. Now, businesses have a need to prove social impact. Over here in the UK, for example, and I think it's the same across the world and growing, is the government's tendering process for a government contract. They're now saying, look, when you apply to be a tender response on our our contract here, we need you to show social impact. We need to see what you're doing to help to save the planet, engage with communities, and generally be a company that exists beyond just profit. 
I want to see your links. I want to see the reasons why you should be here in the first place. And that social value started off at 10% of the marks in January. It's now averaging about 28% of the marks across the board. So there is a need to show. And spreadsheets are no longer enough. So companies are now looking for a solution. You wouldn't write your accounts on a spreadsheet. We know this because it's not auditable. It's not accountable. It's not you can change a number and nobody would ever know. So spreadsheets are not used to write with business accounts. And the same thing starting to happen with social value. Spreadsheets are not enough anymore. You've been asked to prove and verify the metrics that you're proclaiming to be your social value. So that's the offer for businesses. So they see us as a simple tool. Take HubSpot, take uh, any CRM system, take yes. zero accounts or something like it. Yes. And we are in that same genre of, of opportunities that says, look, we are a platform that allows you to record, verify, report and showcase your social value. Yeah. So we are the zero for social value. We are the HubSpot for social value. Uh, yes. And nobody's done it yet because we are the first one to do it. Yeah. We have some extra bells and whistles which make us very compelling. So we have community credits that are awarded to every act of giving. So every individual and every business can accumulate these digital tokens that we call community credits for every act of volunteering, gifting, money raising. It all comes through into your dashboard. So we've got some instant benchmarking, comparables, and lots of different features we can talk about later if you wish. But the reasons why people see is they either want to give more or they want to be seen and measured in their business sense for their commercial gain. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, nothing wrong. It helps everyone. It's a win-win for everyone. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I also see that not only as a tool to enable that and to show that what you are doing, but also as a marketplace, would that be right? Where businesses can find those charities to give and those charities can find those businesses. So basically what we thought was the charities, community groups, schools, yes. not-for-profits, my guiding principle was had to be free of charge. I didn't want to yes. charge them a penny because everybody else does. There's a big donation cash platform that starts with a J. We know who they are. And they charge at every opportunity, percent of here, percentage of that. And it really gets my goat because these are the people that need help, surely. And we're charging them for the privilege. And some people say, that's fine, do it. But I mm -hmm. think, no, I think I'd rather push the cost back somewhere else. So businesses subscribe to our platform. That's our revenue model. And they subscribe based on how many people they want to get involved in their company. Um, the same way that you roll out the CRM system in your company. Not everybody will have access to it, but you know, yes. the majority of people will want to get involved. Same way happens here. You have your personal accounts and you have your setup. When a charity launches yes. their profile, so we're talking about the charities, the community groups, the schools, they can launch a profile. It has to be free. When they do that, they can launch as many little projects into our live marketplace as they wish, unlimited. They can ask for people to volunteer. They can ask for gifts. They can ask for money. Uh, and they can present themselves in a micro way. For big charities, finding local relevance is proving difficult. Um, yeah. So if you take a, a charity looking at heart health, for example, we have one over here called British Heart Foundation, amazing charity, do some great research. But perhaps when you're a local person looking to give locally, that's not top of your list, maybe, unless you've had a heart problem or somebody close to you has. But if they were to take a project and put a defibrillating device in a disused phone box in a remote village, which they do, you might think, ah, that's in my village. I could give them the money to that. That has context yes. to my local responsibilities. Just remind yourself that don't answer the phone on the way back from the pub. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there are local projects set up, and that's what the marketplace is all about. And you're right, the, the businesses, the individuals can look in and see and search by genre, by geography, 
find a project they like and help. Yeah, that's very cool. A lot of marketplaces that I have come across, they found it extremely challenging, especially in the early days to find that initial batch of people because every marketplace has the chicken and egg problem. What comes first? And then do charities come first? Do businesses come first? Because businesses don't go there because no charity is listed and no charity goes there because there's no business listed or a source of revenue. So how did you overcome that? How did you start it? First of all, you're absolutely right. It is a chicken and egg and it's a difficult thing to get right. We're we're a bit of a three-legged stool if you look at it that way because we have the businesses as one leg. We have the good causes, that's the charities, schools, as the second leg and individuals because without individuals, nothing much happens. So you've got to try and grow the three-legged stool in the right proportions to make sure it doesn't wobble too much and fall over. I guess the analogy that I give you is um, imagine going into a small shop and as a business philanthropic giver or a supporter or indeed an individual who has good intents we're the customers and we walk into this little shop and we look around the various sections of the shop one could be child welfare animal welfare mental health diversity or around the planet and, and around the environmentals and we go to the section that interests us and then we pick a tin off the shelf that tin is the projects i've just talked about we pop it in our basket and we go to the checkout and we transact, whatever that transaction is, volunteering, gifting, or money in those analogy terms, and we transact. And then an important thing happens, we get a receipt. Because when we get a receipt, that's called an impact statement. And it's critical because I meet loads of companies that say, we give all this money to charities every year. And I said, brilliant. What happens? Yeah, we give all this money. I said, I've heard that bit, but what do they do? They're a charity and we give them this money. I said, you don't know what they do with it, do you? He said, no. So it's this particular individual go with £2 million a year. It's a big business. And the clue what happened to it. So that receipt, that impact statement is actually what you're buying because that shows you what you've done and what your impact has been. And that's your social value story that's now required for supply chains, for tendering, for marketing, for all the things that's good for in business and becoming ever more important. That receipt, that impact statement is that critical piece of paper, if you wish. And our platform does all that. So you, you know, as a donor, you look at the marketplace, you search for geography or, or genre or anything you want, really, and you find the projects that you want. But we build them around, A, we cold call a lot of charities, but there's thousands of them out there. So you're right, it's difficult yes. to get them all in. How much can you stock the shop until it becomes interesting, I think is the question. Yes. yes. And then, of course, so you get a stock, fully stocked shop, but nobody goes in and the, the charities say, well, that didn't work, did it? And they go somewhere else. So you've got to try and balance it all the time. Yeah. So we very often talk to businesses and say, look, come on platform, use the platform for your own ends. We'll help you. By the way, who are the charities around you that you'd like to support? And they say, oh, there's a list yes. of eight or 10 of them. Leave it with us. We'll get them on the platform to meet you when you join us. And so yeah. we are just growing it like that around those interested parties because they'll transact quicker. They'll give results. We can amplify that through our social media and attract more people on that basis. So it's a little bit like spoon feeding itself at the moment. And we're still early days. We launched in February 2020, just into the yes. mouth of COVID lockdown. Brilliant timing. <laughs> so we really, it's coming out of COVID. It has taken a bit longer than we thought, but the interest yes. is massive and it's building by the week. We have some highly significant opportunities out there at the moment. So, Yeah. So how many um, charities are listed there? How many businesses support it? Yeah. So at the moment, there's about 600 charities. We get about four or five join every couple of days. So they're self-finding us and self-joining. And there's about 140 odd businesses, some very big, Balfour BT Construction, for example. 
Yes. We're talking to the Sellafield nuclear power industry and all their yeah. supply chain. And it's interesting about supply chains because a little bit like GDPR, when it first came yes. out, the data protection, it filtered down supply chains. Little companies weren't too bothered about the government bouncing all over them and finding them. They said, well, they'll never find us, will they? Yeah. So, that, But then the suppliers came down, the customers said, you have to be compliant, otherwise we can't deal with you. And the same is yeah. going to happen for social value. If you can't demonstrate it in the supply chain, then we need to move on because we want to build a highly ethical supply Supply chain. chain. Yes. Yeah. And our platform does that because it allows you to set up groups, private groups for you and all your suppliers or a public group for you in your geography of operation. So a city, for example, or even a trading estate, you can set up a group all free. Once you've joined, you can set up groups and join them and, and actually showcase yourself as a business by joining the groups and becoming part of it. And you can see every other company in the group, just headline stats, not the detail, just headline stats, but you can yeah. almost automatically benchmark within the group. It's a fascinating feature and one which uh, nuclear power industry is dead keen on. Um, large construction companies, the very largest one actually is, is due to come onto our platform as soon as a pilot and they're bringing their supply chain with them. Um, oh, that's a fantastic idea. So we're working with customers and their supply chains and it's building very quickly now. We've got some highly significant companies about to come onto the platform yeah so that's what we're up to but it, coming out of covid has been tricky i have to say but it yes. hasn't recovered as fast as we thought the level of interest is very high uh the conversions are now starting to happen to, to proper subscribing customers yeah. looking forward to to moving forwards yep where, where do you see your platform what would success look like success would look like the investors and community platform or an iteration of it in every country in the world. It's a global operation, this, because we are a global company. We just haven't quite made it out of the UK just yet, yeah. but we're not far away. Uh, we won a Beacon Award in last year, actually, from IBM, one of only 17 in the world. And we were the subject of one of the 17 through our main coding partners. So that's a huge recognition. And, and so we have the high confidence the platform is scalable globally no question with very little configuration we just need to basically get enough cash into the picture right now just to make sure we can move that forwards and uh, create the working capital to expand it overseas and replicate our story and and the success so what do you think is um, holding you back to get to that what's the biggest challenge right now cash Uh, we are as once explained to her, I watched a, a podcast about six months ago, and the guy who was driving a SaaS platform, he said, uh, it's a bit like a space rocket. He said, yeah. you build this lovely gleaming rocket. We've got that. The platform is amazing. And he said, and you press the fire button. He said, and these flames belch out the bottom. And he said, start burning fuel at a massive rate <laughs> of knots. That's called cash. And the cash yes. burn continues, and the rocket moves ever so slowly to start with. Then it starts to gather a bit of pace. He said, the first you know, 100 feet are the most expensive in terms of fuel burnt, as in cash used. And he said, then you start to create its velocity of its own. And the idea is to reach what we call escape velocity, which is where the rocket moves without the burn. And that's the escape velocity. That's a positive EBIT. And so that's yes. where we are. We've cleared the launch pad. We're just starting that expensive burn process. But we've actually paid for the platform. There's no development required in that respect. We paid for the stories, the, the acceptance process from customers so we've actually, we're quite a way up. We're starting to gain you know, some significant velocity right now. But yeah. cash is, is the thing right now. We have a cash round open at the moment, an investment round open yes. uh, for anybody who's interested. And that was that's something we need to get sorted as soon as we can. Absolutely. And then we can resource the expansion. And we don't see anything to hold us back necessarily in terms of market. In fact, quite the opposite. The market is blowing us a nice tailwind right now. 
Um, yeah. It's moving very quickly post-COVID. People are expecting, even demanding, show us your social value, show us what you're made of. You can't just be yeah. for profit anymore. You've got to show us you've got a heart. You've got a, a reason for being in business, not just to tally numbers up and say, aren't I good? I've made a profit. Any fool can do that eventually. But but what are you all about? What's the reason for you? That's the purpose, if you like. Yeah, I have a quick question. Are you guys completely bootstrapped to this point? Yeah, at the moment, yes, we are working on very small cash flow. One of the biggest issues we have is not an awful lot of people know we exist uh, yes. because we've been operating literally on our own internal marketing process and the opportunity to come on from fantastic podcasts like your own and using social media, obviously, and the social media of our customers who are very happy to share. And I've never actually had a marketplace where the, the customer wants you to succeed so much that they share everything for you and with you for nothing. Yeah, so we've got some, some great relationships. And so we are almost homegrown in the market. We've got some very skilled marketing people on board, uh, but we don't have the necessary the reach to actually really push out and, and reach everybody very quickly. And it's amazing how many meetings we have. They say, this is fantastic. We love what you've done. This is made. Where have you been? Why hasn't somebody done this before? I thought, yeah. well, it costs, it costs about a million pounds to write the platform and it's blooming hard work for a couple of years trying to build the overall yes. story in the captain. That's why nobody's done it before. But we're here and we're ahead of anything I can see in the marketplace. There are one or two yeah. aspirational companies in Europe which try and do something that we do, but they don't have community credits. That's a really key component of what we do. And community credits are that digital token that's given by our platform to every act of giving by a business or a person you will earn community credits. And they say, what's great for what do you use them for? Well, it's a passive measure today. But if I said to you, Sam, how many community credits have you got? And you said, I've got 485. And I'm thinking, ah, I've got 210. I need to beat you. So what am I going to do next weekend that's going to sneak up and overtake you? So you can almost use it to gamify giving. It's interesting. I was talking to a very large coffee chain and they said, we've got 1,200 stores we can have 1,200 stores on your platform individually. Yes, you can. And they can all earn community credits. Yes, they do. And we can put winners out the hat. Yeah, you can see the winners. Yeah. Oh, we love that. We love the gamification, the, the, the challenge, if you like. And then you can take it into the sectors and say, as a coffee shop person, I've got this number of community credits. How much has my competitor got? And so you can use it for that. And it's being used by our customers in ways we didn't imagine when we first set up community credits as the token measurement. We've got a and he's building a... The house estate of two halves. It's those wealthy people and those people are on support. And so he basically says in the middle is a shop. And in the middle of this shop, you buy your coffee for a pound fifty. For everybody pays a pound fifty, unless you're on some kind of government income support program, in which case you get it for 50 pence. Yes. And if you can demonstrate you've got community credits that month by using the platform we have, not 50 pence off the price. So if you're in a reasonably wealthy position, you pay one pound for your cup of coffee. And if you're struggling and you've done some volunteering, for example, you get your coffee for free. And people are using it in different creative ways, the ways that we didn't imagine when it first got put together. And ultimately, we want to make them exchangeable into the real world economy. So you're able to exchange them for discount vouchers or, or even products and services eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I see some really interesting projects listed on your on your platform. Do you have some form of a filtering process or or how do you choose which projects to list or is it every project gets listed? It's interesting all the charities and the yes. community groups and the schools they're authorized to list their own projects we don't have any control over that apart from the obvious misuse and use of language yeah. uh, controls 
yes. and we look at every project as it gets launched. But uh, we just basically skim read it from the charity's point of view. But yes. you as an individual, Sam, could launch a project or your business can launch a project because that's what you want to do. And you have to assign it to a recipient good cause, a charity, a school, a not-for-profit. And they have to say yes or no. So there is the offer and acceptance principle right across this platform. So if you offer to go and, I don't know, you're a student, for example, I'm going to sit in a yes. bathtub of baked beans and raise £500 for this particular local charity. The local charity has the offer of the project and they say yes or no. If they say no, it doesn't get published. It doesn't get yeah. connected. If they say yes, it gets published and connected to that charity. And that's where the money will flow to. So the control of the money then passes and we the platform takes over and the money flow goes to the charity. But they have the right of refusal. And that's an interesting concept for many. Because why would you say no? If you are a cancer research charity, for example, the last people in the world you want to give to you is Philip Morris cigarettes or Bat Industries cigarette people. You have to say no. They don't want the money. Yeah. Uh, they, can, they can offer them millions and they will say no. So they have to have the right of refusal. So there's always this offer and acceptance principle built throughout the platform. Yeah, yeah. Say, for example, I'm just trying to grasp the whole thing. And for also the listeners, they can grasp. So say if there's an artist or say a software developer listening to this, since I'm in the tech space, and so that person can say that, hey, I'll build someone a web app or a website or a mobile app or something. And whatever you pay me, I will give to learning program in underprivileged community or something like that. So then how does that project get funded? Do Does that software developer that has to go out and do the marketing or is there enough, are there enough businesses on your platform that that project can get funded? So basically, if you're developing an app and you're selling it and the proceeds are going to charity. Yes. What you do behind the scenes to create the money is nothing to do with our platform. You put the money in your e-wallet and you give it to the charity of choice, but you can prove it and you can showcase that giving process yes. to support your statement that I'm building an app and 10% of my revenue is going to this charity. You can show it and prove it using our platform rather than some people, I'm not suggesting this goes on a lot, but they might say that and actually the money doesn't quite make to the charity in time. So these statements are always built on trust. Well, this is built on a platform, so you can prove that transaction did take yeah. place. But the then, question you were referring to was yes. if I wanted to offer something that I didn't know somebody who wanted it, we don't yes. have that offer list yet, but we're building that at the moment. So yeah. you can have skills, skills that you wanted to offer as being part of, this is who I am, my name's Sam, I'm an expert software coder, and I want to give somebody an app. I don't know who it is yet, but here's my offer. So that offer board is being built at the moment, so that'll come out probably early next year. But right yeah. now, there are enough projects on there for most people to pick up and sort and find something that they'd like to do. And of course, you know, anybody that wants any help, there are other networking opportunities around to say, well, the charity hubs can work for the charities and say, we know the people that do the app. And by the way, if you approach them, they might do it for free, then set up a project, then transact it. So yeah. this is a transactional-based platform. It's not necessarily a market board. So Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, yes. I'm still looking at your platform as we speak because I do find it like really interesting. So someone could like, you know, how you say that individuals can go there and even use it. So an individual can offer their sort of services to a, a charity, for example. Would that be right? Yeah, you can go on and find any project. And individuals can have profiles for free. 
you can yeah. set up today a lifetime account of giving that's volunteering gifting or money raising or donations and that's a free account you'll never be charged for it and that's basically you can use that as an individual in society forever and a day supporting any number of charities on that platform our revenue stream is drawn from businesses who require those consolidated reports because that gives them the traction with social value reporting impact assessments which has a commercial value to that business in their supply chain their customer relationships their investor relationships even and so there's a value to the business and it's an interesting thing because as that value is more clearly described by lots of people now so investors want it for impact investing they almost demand it baked in not as an afterthought a baked in process consumers are saying if you can't show us we'll go and shop somewhere else you obviously your, st- your staff if you don't do something nice we're going to go to somewhere else that does and if you make me a job offer i'm going to look at it and even my own daughter actually she took a job with slightly less salary on a coming out of a master's degree because yeah. she liked the business better yeah where's the absolutely. logic in that but there is <laughs> and yeah, the younger generations is. particularly they're yeah. choosing with their feet where they work so all yeah. these commercial drivers now are getting more and more obvious to businesses and for that reason they need to show social value and here's the rub because previously the charities have been the very poor cousins to the private sector businesses we create the wealth we create the opportunities guess what you need a charity now to show you're a good business and this yeah. whole leveling up of society will happen yep. over time and that makes me really excited because the leveling up of society making the charities valuable to businesses who need to show that they've worked with them it yep. turns the table a bit doesn't it yeah. and so suddenly we end up with a more equal society we respect the two halves of the coin as it were yeah i have three last questions before before we leave one is that is there a book um that you are reading right now or what was the last book that you I'm a prolific reader at the moment so I'm reading a lot of different things it's interesting I tend to pick up books when I know the authors so I have an awful lot of books that have been signed and some quite yes. amazing people have signed books for I met them and I've picked up books signing for free I don't pay them they send yes. me and of course I've written three books and I'll sign books for other people as well it's a bit of a hobby of mine to Swap yes. signed books. There are a lot of books out there that are very interesting. I particularly like the technology versus society books, the ones that yes. says, where are we going? Because yeah. we're actually in the thousand-year decade, and it's between 2020 and 2030, where there'll be as much change in that 10 years, this next 10 years, as there has been in the previous thousand. Yeah. And you think, wow, how can that be true? And there's some books around that have been interesting, talking about how that is true and how it can be true. So. Can you give me a name of some of those books one or two for any audience who wants to look into that At the moment I'm in, I'm in fundraising mode so there's a book uh, it's actually over there I can I can't see it actually it's yes. uh, it's a book all about angel investing Yeah uh, so I've been interested to see how that particular market works because our initial funding has been through angels who yes. uh, who share the vision uh, and as our revenue builds we'll build into institutionals and that's that'll be an easy much easier thing to do but right now we rely on a bunch of you know very philanthropic very connected angels that support us and yeah. so you have had a fundraise that means you have had a pre-seed round or something where you did get the initial funds oh that's great yeah, we had a we had a pre-seed of about a third of a million that was about 2 years ago that's through yes. covid uh, yes. we're looking for a million pounds right now just to get the uk market pushed and the footprint in this stateside market that will buy us that position. Yeah, um, absolutely. So we're the start of that. So looking for institutionals who ha- either operate at the small end or angels operating at mid-range 
you know, less than £100,000, for example, will be an angel that would probably be interested in joining us. And we're looking to demonstrate at, at least a 10 to 20x investment over the next five years. So it's got yeah. huge growth potential, but Absolutely. obviously all these things... That cash has to be in that rocket because if that rocket doesn't clear the launch pad, it comes down with a bit of a smack. So you've got to clear the launch pad and get things moving. But we think the market's in our favour and we think things are happening. One of the interesting books I have read, I will share this one with you, is a book called You Brand. And You Brand has been written by Julia Goodman. And uh, you'll find her as an ex-actress. She appeared in many things. She set up a personal brand company a few years ago. And You Brand is her translation of all her learnings from her acting career and in her business knowledge. And she brands some quite interesting people. I can't name them, but they're very important and very public figures. And she got involved with investors and community. And uh, so one of the things she did was, was start to brand me. So I thought the chair I was sat in looked all right. And I thought I wore the right clothes and spoke all right. No, none of that was accepted. She, she, she gave me a makeover, which is quite amazing. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but her, her approach to brand is quite fascinating. So You Brand by Julia Goodman is one of the interesting books I'd be, I'd be recommending to your listeners. Oh, fantastic. That's really good. And it's amazing to have a really good mentor or advisor like that, isn't it? Makes such it a huge actually. difference. We have a selection of people on the board. Our chairman is Justin Urquhart Stewart. Your listeners yes. may know him for his red braces and red dicky bow tie, yes. uh, talking about all things financial. He's a city character figure that is very well known indeed. Huge amount of respect for Justin. He's our chairman. So we yeah. have Justin, we have Julia, and we have some other non-execs as well we're looking to build out. So I guess the other book I'd like to talk about is probably Leading Constant Change, it's called. Yeah, and uh, that I'll unashamedly tell you that's my book. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> um, so that's available on Amazon. So that's all about constant change management because remember that thousand-year decade. Yes, everything changes. There is no longer a settling down period. There's no longer the norm. It's always moving, always changing. How do you do it? How do you get people to come with you? How do you get things to react fast enough to make sure you're not left behind? And leading constant change was written a few years ago, and. It epitomized some work for the man called Albert Humphrey and his yeah. work on the SWOT analysis. So it's an interesting concept that's still available. Yeah, I do. I do remember SWOT analysis from back in 2001 when I was in university. Yeah, j- just like in, in management school and pretty much SWOT analysis has started in every management school since, I don't know, like 80s or something. <laughs> it's yes, it not has, changed. It's originally called SOFT. And it was actually part of a much bigger program. And it was actually taken by a, a participant in the audience of the seminar that uh, was being run and taken and changed and released as shareware, I guess you'd call it. Uh, yes. And everybody knows SWAT, but actually there's very few people out to do it properly because there is a power behind SWAT that's got completely lost over the years. And you'll see it in Leading Constant Change and what that's all about. So. Absolutely. So, again, that, so it was called SOFT. Is it? Yes. Did he say? Yes. Why soft? What the soft? It stood for satisfactory, not strengths. Satisfactory opportunities, faults, and threats. Oh. So that was originally what it was called. But it, and, and the mistaken belief that was trademarked. The people that took it changed it to SWAT and Humphrey. Strengths, weaknesses, and all that. Yeah. Opportunities and threats. Yeah. So yeah. he used to chuckle and says, "Well, I guess SWAT sounds a bit better than soft." He says. Yeah. And he said. <laughs> 
although it's a pretty useless thing that they've developed and shown, at least it gets people planning, he says. So he, he applauded yes. it for that reason. He had no no malice towards the people that took it, taken it at all. But uh, yeah. his programme yeah. was was a lot more sophisticated, a lot more robust than just SWAT. But SWAT was built into it. So. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. And finally, if you had to start all over again and say you're just out of university or education and you're just starting, you have all the same knowledge that you have now but no money what would you do how would you start and i want what 21 years old again yes yes if you're 21 uh, but you have the knowledge <laughs> of your current age <laughs> you have the wisdom um, of your current self goodness that's a really interesting question i would probably spend more time not just working i have things i'd like to do in life i generally procrastinate and say oh I'll do that when the, the working day's done and the working day's never done for me because business is my passion actually yes. it's my hobby yes. it bleeds into my personal life and takes it over I guess I would spend more time doing the enjoyable bits riding the motorbike a bit more doing a bit more scuba diving you know, shooting a few more clay pigeons and things like that that interest yeah. me I guess I'd get more of a balance, I think, and try and try and turn down the number of hours that I spend in my business. But I do it not because I have to. I do it because I enjoy it, actually. It's, it's just a lifestyle thing. Work-life balance, I think I'd be more interested in at a younger age with the knowledge I have today. Yeah, that's very wise. <laughs> and, <laughs> and on that note, do you have any ask? Are you looking for anything? I know you're looking for investors, so I will put a link to you guys down there. But anything else you're looking for? Are you looking for team members or more charities or businesses? What are you looking for? We're always looking for more businesses to join us and subscribe to the platform. We're looking for charities. Yes, we are. We are looking for investors, but actually we're also interested in people with connections because when we go overseas i've been reminded many times that the uk is a very small place uh, and the world is very much bigger than the world in the uk and so i need to have the right connections the right people with integrity who can perhaps just help me and assist me connecting me in the countries that we now wish to move into so thank you so much for your time and yeah wish you all the best Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Want Money, Got Money with Sam Kamani. Hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable insights that would help you in your startup or your business. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate this show on your favorite platform. It would be extremely helpful and I just cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that.